I'm joined in this episode by author and screenwriter Nikesh Shukler, whose novels such as Coconut Unlimited, The One Who Wrote Destiny, amongst others, have gained him recognition in the literary world. Nikesh's latest book, Brown Baby, which is out in February 2021, is essentially a memoir to his mum and his children. He's also the editor of the best-selling essay collection, The Good Immigrant. Nikesh and I talk racism, representation, white privilege, legacy, and what motivates him to speak out and challenge the status quo. We explore this in the first part of the episode, and then in the second part, we look at how his mum's death really amplified his voice and how he was able to process his grief, and still is. I don't think I would have been brave enough to say the things that I have said in the past about what racism in this country actually looks like without my mum dying and me kind of thinking she always spoke truth to power. I think truth to power all the time. Why am I not saying it? So I think it kind of gave me permission to do all of that stuff. It's an inspiring episode and it's important for all of us to understand why stories matter and why they need to be heard. And as ever, I'd love it if you could rate, share and subscribe this episode so that others can find it and listen. So your books have been a huge success and I've read The Good Immigrant. I obviously know that you've written lots of other books as well. And I'm reading um, at the moment the one who wrote Destiny and that's beautifully written and I, I'm really already very absorbed into it and your books have given writers of colour a platform to voice their stories and validate their own experiences and also for the people who read them as well like myself um, it's very empower, empowering and when when you write your books is that a main aim or are you just a writer who happens to be a writer of colour and obviously those subjects are going to be raised and the response afterwards has been quite interesting so I wanted to talk to you about that and just find out a little bit about how you write your books and yeah uh, there's a lot to kind of unpick in that question um I, th- I think first of all I don't happen to be a writer of colour I am a writer of colour I am a person of colour that is so ingrained in my experience and I think for so long literature has just allowed whiteness to kind of set in as a default and which mm. means that when I when I write of the lives of other people who aren't white middle class they are deemed other they are deemed not relatable in the same way as the white universal and and I and so my, a lot of my work has just been stretching the canon of literature to include people who um, should have stories written about them and aren't white. Uh, it's no great design. I'm not trying to basically, I don't believe in this whole sort of literature. We always have to see ourselves in literature because we don't always have to see ourselves in literature, but there is an aspect mm. to which being reflected in literature, whether, whether you're reflected as the astronaut who's saving the world from a, a meteorite crashing towards it, or you're just falling in and out of love or whether you're having an identity crisis, um, we all go through these things. And, and I just, I really remember um, a review of an anthology that I had a short story in uh, coming out and the review basically saying that it found the short story hard to follow because of all the Indian names, which I thought was preposterous because if I'd named everyone Dave and Andy and Steve, then this guy would have found this short story about a friendship group uh, much easier to sort of dissect and but also he he then said it's nice to see that Indians go through the universal experience as well and I thought what the hell do you think universal means my friend and that really stayed with me because it 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 just made me realize that um I cannot write tell stories about things I want to interrogate without them being seen as other or seen as unrelatable and that is a problem that is well first first of all it's a fundamental lack of imagination by the british that um they can't see anything outside of themselves or the white british the white british middle classes why do you think that there haven't been more writers of color 
do you think it's because people feel scared to put their voice out there or they're just because they haven't been represented? So, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, I've been, I feel like I've been talking about diversity and inclusion in publishing for so long now that it kind of is so boring to talk about. So I can just sum it up in one word for you. Racism! That's, that, that's literally it. Like whether it's conscious or unconscious, it's, it's just this, it's racism. That's simply what it is. Um, and, and the thing is, I think the publishing industry, the film industry, the TV industry, all of these arts, the last thing, because they are sort of centre-left leaning people, the last thing any of them would want to be called is a racist or yeah. the last thing they would ever want to be accused of is um, perpetuating structural or systemic or institutional racism. And yet they are. Um, mm. And so... And that's the reality of it. That's what we kind of have to combat. It's not, um, it's not an uncommon thing in any industry, racism. It just, it just sort of, um, it, I think it raises people's hackles in the arts more because everyone sort of performs slightly left liberal. And so mm. the last, and it was, I think that was an interesting response to The Good Immigrant was like a lot of liberal people read it thinking, well, <laughs> I am not a racist. And then they read it and they were like, oh, crap. <laughs> um, there are things that I do that are kind of problematic. Because it's so subtle, a lot of it. Well, a lot of it isn't, but a lot of it is as well, isn't it? Well, I think, I think the thing is, for, for so long, white, straight white middle-class men have sat on the boards of everything. And the last thing, there's a curious thing about rich straight white men is that they not only do they want to be rich, but they want to be liked as well. They're desperate to mm. be liked. And so the last thing that any of them want to be accused of is perpetuating racism. But they are because of the very fact that they all sort of buddy-buddy each other into all these positions. And if they wanted to end racism, they'd have to quit their jobs. They'd have to stand yeah. aside and let other people through. They'd have to stand aside and let other people be gatekeepers and trust other people to be gatekeepers. And that's in every single industry, right? Mm. So, and that's not going to happen because no one is going to go, you know what, for the greater good, I am going to go and be a landscape gardener for a year and let someone else like make the decisions about what, what we call the canon of British literature or what we put on at the National Theatre or what we hang on the walls of the Tate Modern. No one's going to do that. They love no. their jobs. They love their positions of power too much. So we're sort of stuck. Although, interestingly, as you were talking, I was just thinking about Boris Johnson's guy. The Indi Who's the Indian guy? Um, Rishi Rishi. The, yeah, and he's kind of got all the power at the moment with everyone's jobs and careers and money. And a poor guy, he's like, what, what a terrible task he's got at the moment. But also, I think he's been pretty incredible. Not, probably not enough of what we all need, but I think it's been such a hard and crazy time um but yeah no i completely I, understand. I, I i get what you're saying but and they are these are unprecedented times but i do think mm. that a tory is a tory is a tory it, i know when it comes down to it because like you know I, I i guess at my heart i i i am a socialist and i and i believe that in a in a world where there is one thing affecting so many people the last mm. thing that the party line should be is this should be repaid this will all be have to be repaid to the government at some point and we have to get the economy moving so we can pay for people to um be be on fellow but you know it's essentially putting people's lives at risk and i mm. and so while it was an incredibly initial generous offer to sort of pay for people's salaries and all the rest of it ultimately everything boils down to money and that to me is you know, Dishy Rishi could be black, or he could be brown, or he could be white, or he could be where, from wherever. But he's still he's still pursuing that Tory ideology of the economy comes first over people. We mm. have to we have to protect the big companies over the little people. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, I didn't I didn't mean to go into politics there, but uh, obviously we did. And I I, I wanted to come back to. Uh, I wanted to mention Ramesh Ranganathan because his mum, he's Sri Lankan, like, and his family are from Sri Lanka, like my family. And I always, his mum always makes me laugh because she reminds me a lot of my mum. Why do you think that's important? Why, you know, is it a sense of belonging, that reflection that, um, of our own experiences? Why is that necessary? 
know it sounds such an obvious question and probably a stupid question, but for me, it's just something I guess I've been exploring more as I've become a writer. Um, you know, who am I? Where do I sit? And why is it important for me? Well, it's about what what we define as normality, right? You know, if we're if you're if you're a young brown kid and you have the type of parent who reads a lot to you and takes you to the library and all the rest of it and all of the kids' books you get um are about white you know, there's that famous quote of like, there are more dogs called Timmy than brown people in kids' books. And you read kids' books about white people all of the time and you never see yourself. You end up thinking that stories are for white people. You end up thinking that mm. white people are the subject of stories and you're just, you're the sidekick. You don't, your aspiration levels are set from those very first images that you see on screen and, and in pages. And it's important for us to be able to see ourselves. If you see it, you can be it. Um, it's not a basic thing, but the the thing that I'm I, I'm really like concerned about is that when we're in like developmental stages of our lives, be it a child, or be it you know at school, or be it a teenager, or be it in our early twenties, we need we do need to see ourselves reflected, not just like having our experiences reflected, but having us being the main characters of things. Because it doesn't just normalise for us that we can be astronauts and superheroes and um, what you know whatever pe- jobs people have in books and on screen and like it doesn't just it's not just for us. We don't just get to see ourselves as normal. White people get to see us as normal, and white people get to relate to our stories as their stories as well. Mm. If you look at like the 2015 yeah. reboot of the Ghostbusters film there was a bunch of white men on the internet who were so outraged that their favorite film was being rebooted with four women. Then they were willing to suspend their disbelief enough for a world where ghosts needed busting, but they couldn't suspend their disbelief enough for the fact that four women were able to do it. And that to Mm. me is just preposterous. If you can't imagine women busting ghosts, then you have no imagination. I'm really sorry. Like this whole thing about whether Idris Elba can be James Bond or not. Like it's such a nonsense because like James Bond isn't real and it's actually a lack of your imagination if you can't see it. And, but as we get more into it and these conversations around diversity, I get, I get quite worried that a lot of the time people just think representation is enough. And it's made me realize that, and you, you know, you talked about Dishy Rishi and like, I will call him Dishy Rishi because of like, like, middle-class columnists have gone gaga for a very generic looking Asian man when, when people like Himesh Patel exist in the world. Um, yeah. Um, and it just like, and there is another conversation to be had about um, the, the gaze of um, South Asian sexuality and um, how fanciable we are, but that's another conversation for another, po- another <laughs> podcast. Um, the, but the representation, like the more we get into it, like I don't want to just see like, brown Tories like for me that's not the point anymore the point isn't Mm. the point isn't diversity is having like brown Tories and like crap thrillers by brown people and 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 all the rest of it the 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 point for me I think has become like you can't separate I can't I increasingly can't separate my politics from what I want to see represented and I think a lot of people can't and so actually I'm not interested in representation being the end game because that representation then just becomes wallpaper with no actual interrogation of um, what Mm. that representation means. And also like, um, you know, I don't want to keep talking about whether there can be a black James Bond when, you know, there are nurses and doctors of color dying every single day from coronavirus. And, you know, you you know, and like, it's very easy for, for me as a Gujarati a male from Northwest London to talk about representation, but at the same time, am I addressing within my own community, like anti-blackness? Am I addressing in my own community, like um, rich Gujaratis being so anti-Muslim and pro-Modi and all that kind of stuff? Like it's, it's really important for us to kind of think really carefully about what representation actually means. Where do you think, um, where do you think that comes from in you? Like this, for me it's 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 like a you know it's it's like justice isn't it in a way it's justice for people justice of rights fairness where where does that come from is that from your family is that from your is that innate in you you know i feel like it has come from somewhere um 
not for my dad he's a brown tory but <laughs> <laughs> my dad never was <laughs> he was a lib lib dem <laughs> sit on the fence my my mum my mum and my my mum's eldest brother they were both pretty like in their own way pretty revolutionary my mum was always very invested in charity and even like when we couldn't afford to you know pay pay to live in the house she would still be doing like charity events and stuff like that she was she was really into this sort of uh i guess i don't know if it's an indian idea or a hindu idea of seva where you kind of perform you do work for the community i guess like community service in a way um but because we weren't a particularly religious family like often seva is like stuff that you do at temple at the mandir but um for her it was much more about doing charity fundraisers for like homeless kids in india and and stuff like that and um my uncle he uh, and i've talked i know i've talked about this a lot over the years but my uncle um basically in 1968 took someone to court because they refused to sell a house to him uh because he was colored and uh their words not mine um and a case of racial discrimination under the 1968 race relations act and the thing that always stood stood out for me um, wasn't that he, that he did that or that racism was so overt in the sixties or any of that. It was it was that one person can make a difference and one per and um, he he really like pushed for something even though everyone around him was telling him not to do that. Like his family was saying, don't bring any attention to us. His friends were like, you know, this is you know don't stress about this we can find somewhere else and the company that had loaned money from him thought that he loaned him money to to potentially buy the house they were um worried that they were going to get negative backlash in the press and all the rest of it my uncle was like no the law has been put here to to basically help people like us right is right and hmm. that really stayed with me and you know and so when i've been the person in publishing raising a lot of uncomfortable things, burning a lot of bridges, like losing friends over this. Like, you know, I've no I noticed that people, like some of my white writer friends stopped talking to me because they felt very uncomfortable by some of the stuff that I was saying. And mm. when I felt alone and I felt like um, people were against me and people were talking about me behind my back and I felt like I'd burnt loads of bridges and I felt just such anxiety about, all of this stuff about putting myself out there I had the strength of my uncle in my heart you know so yeah right is right and sometimes you have to do some really uncomfortable stuff in order to push for change like um I'm not I'm not sat I'm not satisfied just staying quiet and but the thing is now that I've got to a position where I've said some uncomfortable things it's kind of given me permission to keep saying uncomfortable things because people expect that from me whether they continue to listen or not is entirely down to them but i know that people listen because i know that when i get stuff wrong people will sort of quietly have a word with me and like mm. and and you know i don't always get stuff right so i think that that yeah it is like a deep-rooted thing within my family that has kind of made me push for this mm. but interestingly like sorry i'm just just spinning off a lot interestingly i think a lot of the reason like a lot of those white friends um sort of fell by the wayside or decided that they didn't want to like hang out with me as much anymore is because a they probably felt scared that at one point i would call them racist for something that they said or say that something that they said was racist but also b i'm offering solutions and it's very easy and i and i just found that a lot of people were very quick to point out why what i was saying was wrong for whatever reason or why the industry had to be a certain way but no one was offering me a route to change and i was offering routes to change and routes to check i think it's the same thing with diversity panels it's very easy to have a diversity panel especially mm. now because we know that diversity is an issue and it's why i refuse to do them uh, we know mm. it's an issue and a diversity panel allows people to kind of just air their grievances without any change actually happening happening that's interesting so what i and so ultimately a lot i think a lot of these friends were like well if this thing if if you're offering change and that's and things start to change that must that might mean that my grip on power is like up for grabs and what I don't understand is like there's this real sort of seat at the table mentality that happens in these conversations where I think 
whether you're a person of color or whether you're disabled or whether you're white, I think a lot of people think that there is a table and there are 10 finite chairs around that table and diversity is getting one white person to stand up and putting a black person there and getting another white person to stand up and put like a disabled person there. And, and actually the thing that I don't understand is why can't you all just bunch up? You can definitely fit five more chairs around that table. Okay. So we fit five more chairs around that table. The table's a bit cramped. Should we buy a bigger table? Okay. Let's buy a bigger table. Oh, this table can fit more chairs around it. Okay. Let's get 10 more chairs around this big table. Oh, and it's a bit cramped. Let's get a bigger table. Oh, now we can fit even more. And ultimately what it boils down to is a lack, again, a lack of imagination. The table is a construct. It doesn't exist. And actually Mm. these conversations aren't saying you need to stand aside to let more people through. It's just saying this is a shared space. This is a communal space. This is that bit of the the flat share that we're all responsible for. This is the kitchen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're all responsible for washing up and throwing away uh, gone over food in the fridge and all the rest of it. Mm. And the more that more that we act like there are fi- there are finite um, spe- slots out there, the yeah. the more we limit our imagination. Oh, it's powerful. Back to Nikesh in a minute. In this episode, I'm highlighting two organisations. The first is Black Lives Matter UK, committed to supporting black life against institutional racism and enabling radical reimagining and knowledge within our own communities. The second organisation is called the Reach Out Project, which helps to combat the lack of social, cultural and enriching opportunities afforded to young people living in inner city London. There will be links to Black Lives Matter UK's GoFund page and the Reach Out Project's website in the show notes of this episode. Please help by donating if you can. Now back to Nikesh. Now, this is a podcast about death, <laughs> as you know, and I wanted to ask you, um, I mean, I, I know that one of the people that has died recently, well, when I say recently, your mum has been a big part of your experience of, of of death that's been very close to you. And I wanted to ask you about that um, and whether or not you've dealt with other death in your life as well and how you've dealt with with, with death and dying um and grieving badly (laughs) i don't know um i think i've ultimately come to realize that there's no correct way to grieve and also grief isn't linear and grief isn't compartmentalized um you know what i think is interesting is like the hindu way of mourning is you you mourn for 12 days after the person has died and in within those 12 days the funeral happens and, and i've always um i've always compared it to a joke a Stuart Lee joke where a Stuart Lee joke will always start really funny and then he'll repeat the joke and it'll be funny and then he'll repeat the joke and it'll be less funny but still funny then he'll repeat the joke and then it'll be really like move on and then he'll repeat the joke and it'll be oh no come on move on and then he'll repeat the joke and he'll be like come on oh god just move on for god's sake and then he'll repeat the joke and then you've hit you've gone through the wall and it's funny again and I and I think that those twelve days are probably that sort of same sort of catharsis that happens. And I'm currently going through that at the moment because an uncle passed away a week and a half ago, and we had the funeral over Scott, like a webcam yesterday. And then we we've, so weird. we've been I've been um, watching some like uh, Zoom pratnas, some Zoom prayers, and that's been it's kind of strange. You know, the first time we did it. Um, for another uncle who died of COVID, um, it was you know everyone had their microphones unmuted and like they were all trying to sing the brothers, but it was it was really hard. Um, whereas with this one, they've kind of bossed it a little bit. So like one person will lead a prayer, and then you all have to be on mute, and then you just sort of. But it forces you to be present in your own thoughts rather than yeah. Um, but the thing with my mum was. I don't I don't think I really grieved my mum until a couple of years after she died because my mum's grief my grief for my mum was so wrapped up in um she died the week my first novel came out and so those two times are very like intertwined and it was wow. a very special time but it was also a really horrific time as well and I I never really I let gave myself to to grieve for her at the time were you very close to your mum I was emotionally very close to her Hmm. Um, in that 
she you know she was at the forefront of my mind in, in most things I did in my life you know I didn't tell her everything but you know I was emotionally very close to her she was a, she was yeah. a difficult person in that her way of love was to kind of push you and push you to be better and to, to you know to never sell to not take moments to celebrate but actually just take those moments of celebration to go well what's next how are you going to improve on this and so I felt like I was constantly chasing her validation hmm. and then the the week that the week of like the apex of that validation my first novel was about to come out and she passes away and so I didn't get to like celebrate have that released with her yeah. um yeah that must have been really hard yeah yeah it was really hard what do you and how did you then two years later start to grieve how do you know what 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 happened to make you suddenly start grieving her or was it just you just weren't as busy and you had time to sort of sit with it no i moved i moved to bristol where i currently live um and I moved to Bristol and it was the first time I'd left London and Bristol was a new place that I was trying to call home. Um, and the house just felt like someone else's house. And meanwhile, because I still had my job in London, I was commuting to London. I was staying with my dad in my childhood home two nights a week. And then I was going back to Bristol. And one day when I was at home in my dad's, I was looking for something to eat and I opened the freezer and there was a Tupperware box of my mum's food. And mm. I was just like, oh my God, that's my mum's food. And I asked my dad if it was okay if we ate it. So and I, I defrosted it in the microwave. And as it was defrosting, this, this kitchen that had kind of been the, like, the hub of life, the whole of my childhood. And since her passing had just become like this super clean, super sterile, unused space where my dad would boil a kettle and take away would appear because that's how my dad was sort of living now that my mum had passed um but it was transformed back into my mum's kitchen again and it smelled like a kitchen and because I like you know cook some like frozen frozen rudleys on the on the dava um it just it sounded like my mum's kitchen and then so I opened the back door to let the steam out and it like was it had the temperature of my mum's kitchen and it was such an electric moment for me that I realized what I needed to do I needed to learn how to cook her recipes (laughs) and she'd, she'd been wanting to like teach me those recipes all this time and I never had I'd never um I'd never bothered because I just assumed that she'd be around. Mm. And then I remembered that on my wedding day, uh, my wife and I were presented with a book of family recipes. And within those family recipes were two handwritten recipes by my mum. And they were of my two favourite dishes of her, her paneer and her Christmas tandoori chicken that she made once a year. And they became the things that I had to build up to. I had to get good enough to be able to cook those. And around that time, um, because I was with my, I was staying in that house and I really wanted to reconnect with, with one of my old, my mum's old friends and her handbag had been at the bottom of the stairs just since she had died, since she came home from hospital. Um, I, d- I went into her handbag to find, see if I could find Auntie Leslie's number in her address book. And I just found this stack of papers in there and they were just shopping lists. And it was just like really mundane shopping lists, like, you know, Weetabix, cheese, pasta, lettuce. But it was just like seeing her handwriting again was really powerful. And um, so when I went back to Bristol, I took one of those shopping lists and I did that shop on my way back from the from the coach. Wow. And I just arrived home with this like bags of stuff. And my wife was like, what are you doing? We already have a lot of this stuff. And I was like, <laughs> I just needed to do this. And I filled the cupboards and it just felt like home. And so I was like, okay, oh. so now I need to, I got out the spice tin that my mum had prepared for me when we'd moved out years and years ago. And like all of the spices had been kind of unused. And so I chucked them all away and I, you know, went to the, like the local cash and carry in Bristol and I got refilled them 
and I just started phoning my aunts in the same way that my mum used to phone her mum when she was she moved out um, to live with my dad when they first got married. And I just got my aunts to talk recipes down the phone to me, and I would try and make them. And like the first time I tried one, I nearly burnt the house down. Um, we ate a lot of really dodgy food. Uh, my wife, bless her, was like, "It's getting better." Um, <laughs> and we worked our way up until like. Um, I remember like the first Christmas after my mum died, we tried to make the Christmas chicken and it just didn't work. Me and my sister arguing over this recipe. And, um, but then the next year, when, when the next year came around, we both did our own versions of it. And it turned out, you know, because I'd been sort of training up to that point, this was my Rocky film. Uh, moment. moment. <laughs> we both made that chicken and it was it was like a really lovely, powerful communal experience. But that I felt like that was though that year where I was trying to recreate that food, that was the time I started properly grieving for my mum. Mm. Because I was really thinking, not, I wasn't thinking, because I think death is like an interest, sorry, I'm talking a lot, I know. But um, I feel like That's great. death is like this interesting thing where someone dies and what you tend to do is you tend to like romanticize them in their death. So like my dad does this all the time where he's like, Oh, your mother was such a fantastic woman. So, so funny and all the rest of it. But then that's <laughs> about like the, the, the depth of his kind of interrogation of who she was as a person. Mm. And you remember the good things and you remember the bad things. And like, you think fondly about like the negative parts of people's personalities and you, you think about the good memories and all the rest of it. But I realized that this kind of staggered attempt at grieving was making me appreciate the very everyday things about my mum and the very mundane things about her. And it just made me realize that those were the important things because they were the things that made her who she was. Um, mm. And if I allowed myself to forget them, then that would mean that I'd have to let go of her. But if I learned how to cook her food, she'd always be sort of with me in a way, you know? Yeah, it's funny because I, um, my mom lives in Devon. And since I've, since I went to uni, I've always gone down and said, right, mum, let's, let's do your recipe for aubergine curry, like Sri Lankan aubergine curry. And I'll get my pen and paper out. She'd be like, why are you wanting to write this down? And I'm like, mum, because this is really important. Like, I love your food. And, you know, I always say to her, you're going to be dead and gone one day, mum. And I want to know how to cook your curries. I want to know how to cook your food. I think food is like a massive part of community and it brings us together, but it's also those memories you create. And it's like you were saying in the kitchen, the smells are so evocative and they just bring up so many memories. And it's, it's a really, it's really interesting that food for you has been a way of exploring your grief and how you feel because mm. people talk about grief and you know, the, the most important thing is to have that connection with that love with that person after they've died. So in a way you're, connection is through the food and do you feel very close to her when you're cooking or when you've tasted something that reminds you of her I don't think so much anymore I think in those first few years I did but I think cooking has just become second nature now where I can like just whip up that that chickpea curry within like 20 minutes and it tastes like it did when I was a kid mm. and it's not that deep do you know what I mean but um, she's still with me. She's still like, it's. I guess it's not tied to the food so much anymore. I, th I guess since having kids, it has become like she's become the missing part. The, she's become the absent figure. Yeah. Because she's not there, and because my kids want to know where my mum is, because there are other parents' mum is around, and mm. um. So talking to them about death has been quite interesting. Like I've literally just written a memoir about all of this stuff. And is this the, your new book, Brown Baby? Yeah, yeah, that's coming out next year. Um, and in that, like, I sort of work my way through how to have conversations with my kid about death. Hmm. And uh, how do you do that? I think I think we've just been really honest. I, I think I I, um, I noticed other people just being very whimsical about death you know they've like they've gone to another special place and you know i'm not particularly religious or you know uh, so i think just treating death as quite a matter of fact 
thing that happens that is part of intertwined with all of our lives um has been really really important um i don't know if my kids get it but we're sort of managing their expectations with it a lot mm. more than um we would be if i think we were sort of telling them fantastical lies about, about death um and there have been times where they've processed it processed it in weird ways like my my daughter once told me um how to be together forever when one of us dies and it was like a really beautiful emotional moment but i'm not going to ruin it for you you should read the book brown baby um but i think for us it's just been a case of being as honest as we can about what what happens when you die have you felt that you've processed a lot of stuff through writing that book yeah definitely definitely um I'm not going to lie. It turned me to a dark place. Like I I felt Mm. like I conjured my mum while I was writing it. And she was sort of like this spectre looking over my shoulders as I was kind of trying to get it down. Um, And ultimately it probably is cathartic to have written about it, but I feel like I will never be over the fact that she's dead. And I will always be haunted by it in some way or just affected by it in some way. And some days that's easier to manage and some days it's not easy to manage. Um, Yeah. I don't know. It's hard, isn't it? I mean, people say, oh, you know, they kind of expect you to get over grief and it's not something you can ever get over. That's what um, I always say to people, you know, it's not, it's not something you just suddenly go, oh, I'm all right now. It's just an ongoing process, isn't it? And it's learning to live with that hole in your life. Of course, because also people keep dying. Yeah. People don't stop dying. And that will always take you back to a significant death. Like my sister yesterday reminded our family WhatsApp group that it's now 10 years to, it was 10 years to the day since my granddad died. Um, And there was like this, three months and but the thing is we don't often talk about my granddad dying or my aunt dying because they all they died within six months of my mum dying like my mum they died and then and then my mum died um and so and but also that she reminded us on the day that we were all doing like a skype funeral like or like a webcam funeral uh for someone else who had passed away and you know i think there is in years to come, we will talk about the collective grief that we feel as a, as a world, you know, a grief for the old ways, a grief for how things used to be, a, you know, for some people who are lucky enough to feel this way, they'll, they will grieve for not being able to have a flat white or what have you. But, um, but we're also grieving for people and we're grieving for people in a new way that I don't think any of us have ever experienced before because the grief mm. is so unphysical and, it's not hit me yet that I've lost two uncles to, during this time. It's really not hit me because I've been so removed from the sort of the physicality of their death. Mm. I've not, I've not shared tears and hugs with family members in the same way. Um, and then last week, like a, a, a musical hero of mine who was also incredibly kind and generous, um, sort of mentor who kind of at various points in my life would just give me the advice that I needed at that time. He passed away um, from coronavirus and I found out about it five minutes. I found out about it on Twitter, which is a horrible way to find out that someone's dead. Um, I uh, I found out about it on Twitter and then five minutes later I had to go and clap for the NHS. And I was just like, that's kind of the world that we're in now because how how news gets disseminated has has changed how we mourn people has changed how we um what we come together over as a society what we come together over as a society has changed it's we're in incredibly strange times and talking about death in these strange times is, is really strange like i don't know when this podcast comes out whether we'll still be in but, you know, even if you release this podcast a week after we talk, we'll still be in a different world to when we spoke, you know? like it's Absolutely, yeah. And I I think about that. I think, is it going to be 
better the way that we think about death or is it going to be worse? How, how, is the good, how, how did your sort of family and the Gujarati community come around for your family and help the funeral process? When my, traditional? when my mum died. Yeah, when your mum died. It, I mean, it wasn't very traditional when my mum died because we'd already had two quite significant deaths in our family that year. And I think my dad was just emotionally done. He didn't mm. really want, he didn't want any prayers in the house. He didn't want um, any sort of wake. He wanted um, to not have very many people at the funeral. Like he was, he was just done. Like he'd lost his dad and his wife and his like cousin sister in like the space of six months and he was just done and none of us really knew what was happening and um but people still mucked in people still came around with foods people still um sent pictures and memories and people still checked in with us and um um i don't really remember that well the thing that i remember about the day of the funeral is um, there was a two-page interview with me in Metro that day. And because I hadn't, like, tweeted, mum's dead, or, like, told a lot of my friends uh, that my mum had died because it had been quite sudden and I was still processing it. I had loads of people getting in touch with me on the day of the funeral, kind of just bigging me up over this Metro thing. <laughs> so weird isn't it It was really weird and but like for some reason i just couldn't turn my phone off because that sort of tether to the outside world was a strange comfort and then it kind of came to a head in the like the procession at the end where like you line up and the family will kind of come up and offer you their condolences one of my aunts had a a copy of the metro and she asked me to she asked me to sign it and i was like (laughs) what are you doing and it just and it was that was the moment that pulled me out and I was like I should not be thinking about this today it was it was almost like I accidentally got like shamed myself into like taking what was going on seriously and it was it was just a horrible horrible moment that's particularly weird for you that to have to go have gone through that it was weird I know you have a very strong sense of identity and getting your thoughts out there has that changed since your mum died what's changed in you what's changed in your identity since she's died and what things have you noticed about yourself that come from her I don't think I would have been brave enough to say the things that I have said in the past about what racism in this country actually looks like without my mum dying and me kind of thinking she always spoke truth to power I think truth to power all the time. Why am I not saying it? So I think it kind of gave me permission to do all of that stuff. Um, Why? Because it was the right thing to, it's the right thing to do. And because my mum was very, my mum's big thing was always about, you know, a platform for you is a platform for all of us. Like, a win for you is a win for our community. A defeat for you is a defeat for our community. Um, and she was she was always very keen on like sharing, you know, like we share this stuff because we're a community. And so I realized that, you know, in 2010, I had my first novel come out and 2014 have it like going through the process of mourning my mum. My second novel comes out and it's essentially a, a satire about digital grief. Mm. Um, and in the aftermath of that, I just think I have a platform. I can share that platform with other people. That's what my mum would have expected me to do at this stage in my career. Mm. Um, and around that time I was, I'd become a youth worker. And so I was doing that kind of work um, where I was kind of mentoring lots and lots of people. And it made me realize that I should be sharing what's happening to me with other people. And so that's why things like the good immigrant came about. That's why the youth magazine I edited for five years came about. That's why loads of things, loads of the things that I do came about was that sort of realization that, my mum would have wanted me to share this because a win Mm. for me is a win for the community. Wow. That's really powerful, isn't it? 
Have you ever thought of it that way? Um, you know, just that journey since your mum's death and what you've achieved since she's died and through that grief and through that pain, it seems like to me that you've, this is a, a process for you and this is what's come out of that process. It's quite beautiful, actually, when you look at it like that. Yeah, it's all a testament to her. Like, everything that I've done is because of who she was, you know? Mm. Wow. <sighs> um, what do you believe happens when someone dies? Do you, do you believe in life after death? Or a consciousness or energy or, or anything? Or I'm just curious. Um... I think now in my pragmatic mind... In the light of the day, as we approach lunchtime, no. But then, you know, when I can't sleep at 1am and I'm having conversations with my mum in the dark, like watching the sort of the cars, the sort of the reflection of car lights dance across the ceiling. Um, am I talking to her or am I talking to my projection of her? I don't know. Um, I, I guess I believe in like some sort of symbolic afterlife for people, like the way people live on in our memories. And that's why I've been so conscious of trying to retain the essence of my mum's mundanity, <laughs> my mum's everydayness, um, because that is her. Um, mm. but I don't think I believe that she has reincarnated and I don't think I believe she's in a heaven and I don't think I believe that she is a ghost looking over my shoulder right now I think she's re-dispersed energy of her essence has kind of gone into me and my sister and it's our duty mm. to, to channel that energy into something for our kids and have them when we go have them channel the essence of us and that's but that is essentially what heritage me is right there's like there's something so innate and abstract and energy focused about what heritage is. And I think about that. Mm. I think about that a lot. I just wondered what, you know, how you think of your, your writing as a, as a legacy or do you not really think about it like that? I used to think that I'm just a writer and that's all I want to do. And it's all I'm good at. But I think mm. ultimately what I'm trying to do is stretch what we consider normal stretch, who we consider to be the default stretch, um, what culture means and so I do think my books are cultural statements and I do think that they have an impact and a legacy that is much bigger than me but that the thing that I've realized about writing a book is the second it comes out it doesn't belong to you anymore yeah that's true. it belongs to readers and so for as long as there is a readership for my books that's for as long as my legacy lasts but mm. that and that won't that won't be forever um, you know, maybe I'll be rediscovered in 200 years time. I don't know. But um, the, <laughs> the the fact is that for as long as readers want to know what I'm thinking or what I'm concerned about, that's my legacy. What about your children? Do you think about them reading the books and knowing more about who you are and what your thoughts are in a sort of different way? Maybe. I, th I mean, Brown Baby is a letter to my kids. Yeah. Um, in the same way that James Baldwin's The Fire This Time is, Fire Next Time, sorry, is a letter to his nephew. And the same way that Between the World and Me by, by Ta-Nehisi Coates is a letter to his son. And Dear Girls by Ali Wong is a letter to her daughters. These, this is a letter to my kids. Have you, will you read it to them? No. I don't, when they're a bit older. I think when well, they can read it for themselves, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what what do you want to achieve before you die? And how would you, how would you like to live if you're not doing it already? It sounds to me like you're living in a way that you want to live. But what are you thinking about in terms of what more do you want to do with your life? And do you feel like you're doing that? I do, doing what you want to do I do feel like I'm finally doing what I want to do or I mean all I want all I wanted in life was to write a novel whether it was published or not probably mattered less than writing the novel and I've done that mm. so everything now is bonus 
So now I just think all I want to do is do something good now that is good enough to allow me to do, to write about the next thing that I'm really concerned about. And when that is done and it's good enough to let me write about the next thing that I'm concerned about. Yeah. Um, like I have small ambitions, but in terms of like the great goal that I wanted to achieve, I did it. Yeah. Um, and in terms of living my life, I don't know, be nice to live a life where I worried less about whether people liked me. <laughs> But that is the the sort of <laughs> the weakness of most artists, I guess. We all have that kind of vulnerability within us. Um, that would be nice. Care less about what people think. That would be golden. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess it's difficult being very prominent uh, as you are on social media and out in the public domain with your thoughts. Um, not everyone's going to like you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, I... I wanted to also ask you, I'm sure you know what your name means. Um, I read somewhere, because actually I was telling my nephew about you. He said, where's this guy from anyway? I said, oh, he, he was born in Harrow. And he said, he said he's a North London king. And I was like, God, is that the meaning of your name? So I looked up your name. He was just being silly. Um, and your name means the man who saved the people. Does it? Yes. Did you know that? In what language? In Gujarati? <laughs> I think it's Hindi. That's mental, isn't it? That is, because I always thought that, um, <laughs> according to my aunt, Ish is like ruler or king, but yeah. Nick either means street urchin or honest. And so I was oh. either honest ruler or ruler of street urchins. I like the man who saved the people. That's I know. I thought you'd like, I thought, God, you must know that, what his name means. No. Can you, <laughs> can you send me where you found that? I, yeah, I will do. You're going to put it everywhere now, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought amazing. that was a really nice... Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I'll send that to you afterwards, but thank you. No, thank you for having me. If you want to find out more about Nikesh, please go to nikesh-shukla.com and his new book brown baby will be out in february 2021 